started. Exam one. And I did it the right way this time, right? And I won't confuse, I don't want to throw everybody into a panic saying all of a sudden the exam chapters changed. So for 104, us, this class, chapter 0 through 2, we've covered chapter 0 completely, we've covered chapter 1 completely, and we've gone through a lot of chapter 2, but we'll finish that up today. And that is Friday. I'm thinking we should finish chapter 2. If there is a little bit we don't get to, then that section will not be covered. Homework 2 is due the following Friday, and then the second quiz will be available. I don't have it up yet. It'll be some when I get it set up. It'll be on chapters two and three for you. So, and it will be available through the 18th, the next Sunday, the Sunday. So, those are the next couple things that are coming up, and then after that, we have a few things coming up because you have your first article is coming due towards the like the next week after this. And there's a couple other things. You have a couple other things due to come up shortly. So right now is the quiet, quiet time. The lull before the storm. Okay, so questions on the assignments. I say exam will be, exam will be done. And, we, and again, Friday we will do, I have a lab for you. It's one of the labs using the computers, the Sky program. So it's sort of an introductory one to that. We will do that first. We'll do, so we'll do the lab at 9. Once we're done with the lab, then I'll switch over and give you the break and let you do the exam. And once you're done with the exam, as I said, many people finish them in, some people take the whole hour and you're welcome to. You know, if you want to take the whole time, I don't mind. But if you're done in 20 minutes or 30 minutes, as some people are and are done, you know, I get to that point where I've stared at an exam and it's like, I just don't want to look at it anymore. You know, I've gotten what I can and I'm not going to get anything else and staring at it for another half hour won't do any good. And other people want to sit there and nitpick every, and that's, you know, Whichever way works out best for you. I'll be here the whole hour. But if you're done in 20 minutes, that's why I'm not making you come back for lab. So we'll switch it on exam day. Do the lab first, then come back and do the exam for you. So, and then you'll have time. If there are questions or anything, if there's anything you want me to review right before the exam, I'll be more than happy to go over it. Alrighty. So picture of the day for the day. It's this beautiful little star, this teeny tiny little star marked with the lines here. SDSSJ1029151 plus 172927. No, the name won't be on the test. I won't expect you to remember it. Although I do occasionally put a question about one of these photos on the test, just so you, just so you know. If it's on the test, it's one of the ones we did during the, day, during the classes, though. But this is a very interesting star because it's a star that shouldn't exist. So our current understanding of how stars formed in the early universe and we'll go over this in more detail in a few weeks in this class. But stars formed in what we call the call populations. There's three different populations of stars. And this is the first star that's been identified to be population three. So population one stars are the stars like the sun or the relatively new stars. Population two stars are the older stars. And population three stars are the oldest stars. Notice how astronomers did it backwards again, right? Population one are the youngest stars, population three are the very oldest stars. But population three star has never been found before. This is the first one, and this is the composition, and this is what tells us what population it is. It's about 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, and 0.00007% everything else. Now. When we learn about stars, we're going to learn that stars are almost all hydrogen and helium. 
So this isn't too far off, but this percentage is much, much smaller. For the sun, it would probably be closer to about 1%. So you might have, you know, 74.5% and 24.5% and 1% other elements. Yes, sir? This one is, and I don't know off the top of my head, let me see if they give me a distance. They don't give me a distance on it. I have to look. It's going to be, it's a relatively faint star, so it has to be relatively nearby. Now that could mean 50, 100, 200 light years, so it's not like next door to us, but it has to be relatively close because it's a relatively small star. Because to form with a composition like this, it would have had to have formed very early after the Big Bang. So the Big Bang that created the universe would have been 75, created about 75% of the atoms by weight, hydrogen, and 25% helium. So if you add up the mass of the universe, 75% of it is hydrogen, 25% was helium. So the earliest stars that would have formed would be theorized to be stars that had a composition much like this. Almost all hydrogen, helium, no iron. No aluminum, no carbon, no oxygen, no neon. Nothing but hydrogen and helium. But our th current theories of how the stars would have formed and how everything would work said that those stars should all be long since gone. Yes, question? Don't they use helium they use hydrogen or something? They take hydrogen and fuse it into helium. So the hydrogen is made, in, is made into helium in the star. So they don't need the hydrogen, the helium for energy, but it's what's produced. But in, in the original explosion that produced the universe, you would have had about this level of percentages. But then why this star exists and why it has nothing, almost nothing. Say the sun would have about 1%. Other stars, you know, very low stars with very low concentrations of metals. Metals to an astronomer is anything that isn't on the first row of the periodic table. So the first row is hydrogen and helium. That's metals. Just so if I say metals, because sometimes I do that instinctively, and I want to make sure you're, you know, yes, carbon is a metal, oxygen is a metal, neon is a metal to an astronomer. There's no, that's all metal. Everything beyond hydrogen and helium is just metals. It's everything else. And it's mainly because even in the sun, 75% hydrogen, 25% helium, 1%, or a little less than 1%, everything else. There isn't a lot of other stuff out there. But why the star exists like this, it's going to be redoing, we have to redo models to explain, especially if you can find more stars like this, more of these population three stars, it's going to be very interesting to have to redo some of the models to explain why they still exist, because the current models say they shouldn't, that they should have all burned up and exploded a long, long time ago. We should have formed very, very big stars. And that, again, that's with our current models. So go back to our scientific method. Now we've got something that conflicts. Now we've got to go back and rework the models to find to explain why this works. So, so even in the photo of the day, we go back to the scientific method. So interesting one is some stuff that will be coming up. If they find more stars like this, it will be quite interesting. The big long name, in case you're wondering, is how most things in astronomy are named. They're cataloged because there are, you know, here's one little tiny portion of the sky. Look at all the stars and galaxies and little objects in it. So it's given a catalog for SDSS is the catalog that's done. And then this is usually the coordinates, the right ascension and declination. It tells you where it is in the sky. So that's usually just how they're cataloged, just for your information. Questions? Other questions on it? No? So just into the star that should not exist that we've now discovered. So we get to go rework our theories, which is always good. That's what you're looking for is things to you know. 
if you, everything agrees with your theory, you're stuck, right? You've got to find something that disagrees so you can keep going. That's what keeps science interesting. All right, I gave you back your labs, the first lab. I'm going to work on the second ones and your homeworks. I probably will not have the homeworks done. Well, obviously, I won't have be able to get them back to you before the exam. If you go into Blackboard and into week one now, though, uh, you should have homework one, which is the homework you did. And below it now should appear the answers. So if you want to go look at my answers to it, you can go and get that. So I have that up for you with my end. That doesn't mean that other things aren't right or wrong or that yours were wrong if you didn't say exactly what I said. But if you want to have that to review for the exam, you can go get that. You can access that. Now, I just made that available this morning. So I wanted to let you know. But you have to go back into lesson one where the homework was and go below it. And watch because they do put, you know, they expand and contract. And if you won't see it, you have to, you know, expand that little plus and minus. So I know I've had some people who've missed that. The answers aren't there. They're there. They're just... They're hidden below it. But then you can get that, and if you want to get the answers and read what my answer to each question is, you can have that for to studying for the exam. And I have also put up, let's go back to this week, and I think I put these all in week three. I made up review sheets last semester for the class. Someone had asked for them. So there are review sheets. My review sheets are in the form of questions. So you might want to go through these. I have one for chapter zero, chapter one, and chapter two. And they're my key points, and they're just things that I use like when I make up the exam. So you're not going to see that question word for word, but do you understand? Can you just answer that question in a few words? So they're good ones just to go through, and there's one for each chapter. Yeah? Are the answers with that as well? I don't have any answers for those, no. That's just for you to review. So what I have people do is just take them and write your note, you know, what are the different types of lunar eclipses? Well, I'll write the couple down. But I don't have, don't have answers for those. Those, those you've got to do your own answers for. But that's sort of a stu- some people want a study guide or something. You know, what am I thinking is important? Here's what it is. And you can reuse my lectures, which you have available. And you can reuse you know, the other files to get, to get to them. But no, there are no answers for those. But there's, those are in week three, the current week. There's chapter zero, chapter one, and chapter two. And I have most of those made up for this course already, so I will try to keep those going for you. If you find them useful, please let me know. So don't, don't tell me now, because they're not useful until Monday. You're not going to be able to tell me if they're useful. You know, if you did, did well, if felt like you did well on the exam and they helped you, guide you, then tell me. If you found they were useless, tell me too, so that I know, because I don't want to, you know. If 10 people tell me they're useless, then I don't need to spend the time making them. Okay, so let's see what we can finish in chapter 2 now. All right, we were doing waves. So we were talking about waves, and we looked at this slide last time, and basically the difference that I was telling you between water waves, sound waves, is that water waves and sound waves need to travel in something. Water wave is not going to travel through a, through no water, right? The water's gone, the wave disappears. There's no more wave. Once you get further up the beach, up the sand, there's no water wave anymore, right? The water wave is gone. The water waves need to travel through water. Sound waves need to travel through something. Sound waves can travel through the atmosphere, as they're doing right now with me talking to you. They can travel through anything solid. So they can travel through, you know, a solid bar. Now, if you put the bar up to your ear and you tap on it, you can hear hear it very loudly. It travels, and it actually will travel faster through that. Electromagnetic field, electromagnetic waves do not need anything. They can travel through space. So sound waves cannot travel through space. If there's an explosion on the sun, we can see it, we'll never hear it. 
because it has to travel through that vacuum to us. And any sound wave that may have been produced deep in the surface of the sun where there might be enough particles to create a sound wave is going to be gone when it gets, as it has to travel through the outer solar atmosphere, which is very thin and won't conduct sound, and then through the vacuum to the Earth. But electromagnetic waves, fortunately, otherwise we would see nothing. Everything would be dark and cold and we wouldn't be here in the first place if electromagnetic waves couldn't travel without a specific medium. But they travel by changing electric and magnetic fields. Again, we looked at that a little bit, I think, last time. And it's the, it's the particles that are changing. It's accelerating charged particles. So we'll see a lot of this when we talk about certain different types of electromagnetic waves. But when charged particles move, they create electric magnetic fields and they actually emit the radiation. So we get a charged particle moving, especially when it comes We'll look at these in distant galaxies. They move around the magnetic field of the galaxy or the stars. And they accelerate and then they will emit very high energy radiation, x-rays, gamma rays. So very high energy radiation that we'll see. And okay. Now an example of a magnetic field that you're familiar with is this, right? Earth has a magnetic field. So if you take your compass out, it points to the north, right? Which is actually up here in northern Canada. It's not the North Pole. It's the north, north physical pole of the Earth. The North Magnetic Pole is a little bit off of that. And it's actually in northern Canada. But everything, all the field lines, so the field lines come out towards the South Magnetic Pole, up and around towards the North Magnetic Pole. But those guide those charged particles. So when I looked at those charged particles last time, when, charge, when particles from the sun come, an electron, which is a negatively charged particle, for example, when it tries to come straight through here, it can't hit the Earth. It's another good thing for us. These charged particles can't just smash into the Earth because as they come from the sun, and the sun spews out billions of them every second, the magnetic field blocks them. And they follow along, and they can funnel along and move along the magnetic field lines, but they don't cross them easily. It takes a lot of energy for them to cross. So they tend to come down. So these charged particles tend to hit the atmosphere instead up in northern Canada, Alaska, Siberia, Greenland, uh, Scandinavia, or in the south magnetic pole. But that's where you see the aurora. So these charged particles hitting the atmosphere is what causes the atoms in the atmosphere to glow and causes the aurora. If it were not, if they were just coming straight through here, you know, if this far north magnetic pole shifted enough that it was, you know, towards the equator or something, you know, there are some planets that have really oddly shifted magnetic fields, you know, then the aurora would be centered right around other areas. And that's not going to work for me again today, is it? I'm having all sorts of fun with that. Okay. So again, electromagnetic waves. They're a self-propagating wave. So once we create one, the vibrations create an electric field, and the electric field changes, and that creates a magnetic field, and that magnetic field changing creates an electric field, so it just ke it keeps building on itself. And it will keep, it's not expanding or contracting, it just moves. So as this electric field travels through space and changes, it creates a magnetic field. So here's the electric field shown in red. So it's changing, and as it changes, perpendicular to that, you get a blue magnetic field. 
Again, the details of this get a little more complicated into the physics that I wanted than I want to do for you. It's just the idea that it is a changing electric and magnetic field that I'm looking for, just for you to understand. This is everything. This is visible light. This is x-rays. So if you get your arm x-rayed, that's the same, same thing is happening. That's the same kind, of, same kind of energy that's being created. Gamma rays, infrared, ultraviolet, radio waves, they're all the same. They're all the same type of, they're all created in the same way. They're all the same type of, same type of wave. They just have different energies, different wavelengths, different frequencies, different periods. Remember all the terms we went over last time. So all of those, all those things are different. But the, the wave in itself is the same. Now into the diff for the electromagnetic spectrum, here's what we're looking for. They have different frequencies and different wavelengths. So if we look at just the visible light, so ignore the rest of this for right now. There's the visible light. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and violet, right? The colors of the rainbow. So when we split up the light and you shine a flashlight through a little slit, and through a little prism here, and it spreads out the light, you get the rainbow. We just did that on Friday. With similar, similar equipment, right? You had, you had your light, which wasn't white light in those cases. It was the tubes. And you looked at them through the little slit in one end of that tube. And then also in there was not really a prism in those. It's what they call a diffraction grating, which is another way of splitting up the light. And that splits up the light, and you saw in some cases with neon, you, saw, you did see almost a rainbow of colors. On some others, you just saw very specific colors. But if you did that and looked at white light, if you'd looked outside, you should have gotten almost a complete rainbow. And you did. If you looked at the fluorescent lights, you kind of got a rainbow with a few bright lights on top, bright lines on top of it. So that's what we see. That's when you split it up. But there's actually more. It goes beyond that. There is infrared beyond the red and ultraviolet beyond the violet. So red are the longest wavelengths of visible light, violet are the shortest. So ultraviolet are then wavelengths that are shorter than the violet. So they're even shorter. And as those wavelengths get smaller and smaller, the energy gets higher and higher. So what's not shown on here is energy. And these are the very highest energy towards this side. And you probably know those because you've heard of these things like x-rays you think of as damaging, gamma rays you think of as dangerous. Those are the real high energy electromagnetic waves, but they're really no different except in their amount of energy than visible light. They're the same thing. And radio waves and infrared are much less energy. So if you could take the spectrum of the sun out in space, has to be out in space, I'll explain why in a little bit, you would actually not only get this visible spectrum, but if you could have a way to detect it, you could detect Infrared waves, radio waves, ultraviolet x-rays, and gamma rays from the sun. You could get the entire spectrum. So the sun emits all of, it emits all of that, primarily in the visible. You know, most of the light from the sun comes in the visible, but it emits some gamma rays, some x-rays, some ultraviolet. We know that when we get a sunburn. Right? Infrared, you, know, you feel the warmth from the sun. And then ra and radio waves. The sun is a strong radio source as well. Now this is not really done to proper scale, and I think the next picture shows a little bit better. This makes the visible spectrum look like a big chunk of the electromagnetic spectrum. Actually to scale, here's a little bit better. It's kind of this little teeny tiny portion of it. There's visible light, that's what we can see. 
but radio goes way off and it goes forever. There's no ending to it. And gamma rays start here and go way off this way. X-rays are a big range, ultraviolet, infrared. You see that there is some overlap in them too. You know, some things, some of the far ultraviolet, far away from the visible is actually similar to what we call soft X-rays, which are less energetic X-rays. But you see that the visible now is this teeny tiny portion of the spectrum. So just this little bit down here that we can see, it's real tiny. And this is this idea of this chart is to give you some ideas of the scales. So you're looking at the frequencies and the wavelengths. And you're looking here, this sort of helps you a little bit better because this gives you something to put it in perspective. But when you're looking at you know, radio waves, you're talking about things that have a wavelength about the size of a person. So their wavelength might be five feet, six feet. You know, the typical size of a person could be the wavelength of a radio wave. Bigger radio waves could be, you know, skyscrapers or Mount Everest, could be really big radio waves. Very low energy. The longer that wavelength gets, the less energy they carry. So these have very, very low energy. As you get smaller and smaller, you know, the strongest gamma rays would be the size, would be the wavelengths would be the size of the atomic nucleus. Incredibly tiny. And visible light is here in some, you know, what is it, around the bacteria? Bacteria to virus stage. So very small wavelengths, not something that you can see visibly that small. But just to give it just gives you sort of a perspective on it. Now the last thing that's on here, this bottom part, if you see the blue there, everything that's in blue on the bottom is blocked by the atmosphere. So where it's white, it's the, our atmosphere is transparent and we can see out into space. So if our eyes were sensitive to x-rays, the night sky would be dark, would be pretty dark from Earth, from the surface of the Earth. For out in space, it would look much more interesting. But if your eyes could see x-rays and you were standing here, you wouldn't see anything. The night sky would be dark. If you look in the infrared here, a lot of the infrared is blocked out. So if your eyes were sensitive to this infrared, again, if you look now to it, it's not, it's going to look, you're not going to see you're not going to see stars, you're not going to see galaxies. And if you look in the very long portion of the radio, that's all blocked out by the atmosphere as well. So what we can see from Earth is visible light. That makes it through. We can see visible light. We can see radio waves get through. A big range of them actually from about a centimeter to about 10 meters. So that's a big range of radio waves that we can detect. And if you notice this little kind of jagged portion here is actually part of the infrared. There's some infrared that we can see. Most of the infrared that we can see is the closer part to the visible spectrum. So the, what we call the near infrared. We use near and far on infrared and ultraviolet. Near means close to visible and far means far away from the visible. So when I say near infrared, that's the closer section to the red in the visible light. Those you can see if you've got a reasonably, if you're reasonably high in the atmosphere, that's why they put these observatories up on mountains so that you can see and in, use infrared light, actually observe it. And if you don't have very much water around because water absorbs a lot of infrared light. So if you're in a very wet area and very, down, very low down here, so if you're trying to look out there today in the infrared, 
you're not going to see anything, not only because it's cloudy, but because it's so wet outside. It's going to absorb any infrared that comes through the atmosphere. But that's all that we can see from the Earth. And we talk about telescopes next time. I think it's next time. When we go on to telescopes, then we'll talk a little bit more about this. But that's all we can see. So if we're looking from Earth, we have optical and we have radio and a little bit of infrared. That's all we can observe. And here's what I've just told you again, but let me review it a little bit. Again, essentially what I've just told you. Visible, the near infrared, close to the visible, and the radio spectrum. That's what we can see. Our atmosphere absorbs everything else. Aren't we glad, right? We don't want all those x-rays and gamma rays from space zipping right through to us here on Earth. That wouldn't be a, wouldn't be a pleasant thing for us. But it also but it, does, it means in terms of looking at if we want to study gamma rays from space, then we need to put a satellite up in orbit. We need a telescope up in orbit that can observe them. So we, don't know, we didn't know anything about gamma rays from space or being able to detect the objects that emit them until the last 30, 40 years when we put satellites up there. So it's only been very recently that we've been able to do that. And that's made, if you look at, go back and look at that electromagnetic spectrum, it was a very big spectrum for most of astronomy for the last, to the last 70 years or so, all we've been able to look at was that, to the last 70 years, that little tiny bit in the visible. The little tiny bit, that's all we were able to see. Then we added radio in back starting in the 30s, 40s, 50s. We started to add some radio. And then only more recently have we really looked at infrared and ultraviolet in great detail and the x-rays and gamma rays. Don't worry about this last. You don't need to worry about that. It's just, it's just how they've scaled the plot. It's things change by factors of 10, not by linearly. You don't need to worry about that. But that's the whole idea of this, is that again, we're looking at we're only, the atmosphere only lets through very certain wavelengths. It does not let everything through. So in order to observe a lot of it, we have to get up above the atmosphere. Okay. Black body spectrum. We'll do it pretty good. Okay. This is what the spectrum of a star looks like when we look at how bright it is at each frequency. So essentially when you take your rainbow, so you take your spec, you take your little spectroscope, you take your prism and spread the light out. If you measured how bright each little section of the light was from the radio through visible light into gamma rays, it would plot out like this. And this is what we call a black body spectrum. A black body is what we call a per, is a perfect radiator. It only depends on its temp, on the temperature of the object. And any black body doesn't make, no matter what it's made up of. Could be made up of iron, could be made up of carbon, could be made up of uranium, could be made up of hydrogen. Will emit this exact same spectrum. Now that's different than when we talk about the spectra like we did on Friday. We're going to come to that in a little bit. This is the overall just depending on the temperature. This has nothing to do with gases or compositions. There's another spectrum that comes on top of it later. But this is the overall spectrum of the sun would look something like this. It has a peak here. Visible light, right? That's why we see visible light, because the sun emits lots of visible light. So the peak up here is in the visible. It emits a good amount of ultraviolet and infrared radiation, but it gets less and less as you get to the radio, and it drops off extremely fast when you go towards x-rays and gamma rays. So if you're looking for the sun to emit real high energy gamma rays, it doesn't do very many.
But there are other objects that are quite different that actually emit a lot more of them. So that's what a black body is. It emits only depending on its temperature. And that temperature tells us two things. It tells us where this peak is. So the hotter the temperature, the higher energy that shifts to. So the sun peaks in the visible part of the spectrum. A really hot star would peak in the ultraviolet. So it would be shifted all a little bit further and it would be emitting more energy. A very, very cool star would peak in the infrared. So when we've looked at some of those pictures of stars on our photo of the day, you see the blue star and you see the red star. Well, they're really telling you the temperature of the star. The red star is very cool by comparison and the blue star is very hot. A star like the sun is 6,000 degrees. A very cool star might be 3,000 degrees. So half the temperature of the sun. Still pretty hot, but relative to the sun, it's very, it's not very, not, not, relative to the sun, it's very cool. And a hotter star might be easily 10, 15,000 degrees. So more than twice as much as the sun. Okay, now to go step aside here, in astronomy, we don't use Fahrenheit, we don't use Celsius. We use a completely different scale. So, it's, it re- when you get to most of the astronomical temperatures, honestly, it doesn't matter too much. But we use the t- what we call the Kelvin temperature scale. In the Kelvin temperature scale, nothing ever goes below zero. Zero is the coldest you can possibly get. You've probably heard of that absolute zero. That's as cold as anything can possibly get. It's negative 270 degrees Celsius, negative 459 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, nothing we get close to on the Earth, even no matter how cold it gets in the middle of winter, it's not getting close to that. Because essentially at this point, the motion, the molecules in the atmosphere are moving around. At that point, the molecules would stop moving. So you'd lose your atmosphere. Everything would condense to the ground. There would be absolutely no motion. But all, so all it does is it takes the Celsius scale and it adds that 273 degrees. So that zero is the absolute lowest temperature you can get. And things go up from there. So water freezes at 273 degrees. Water boils at 373. I'm not testing you on those. You don't have to know when water freezes or boils on them on any of these scales. But just giving you as a comparison, it makes kind of a difference here. But when you get up to the temperature where hydrogen fuses, well, it's 10 million degree, about 10 million degrees Celsius or 10,273 degrees Kelvin. Does it really matter? If you're off by 273, because many things that we're talking about, we're talking about thousands of degrees for the stars. We're talking about millions of degrees when we're talking about the center of the stars. But I just wanted to get you to know that this is the one that I am, I'm always referring to the Kelvin scale. So when I say the sun, temperature of the sun is 6,000 degrees, it's 6,000 Kelvin. Or it would be about 200 and 73 degrees less than that Celsius. And if you want to go through the calculation to figure it out in Fahrenheit, you're welcome to. I'm not going to, I'm not going to bother. But just so you know, when the numbers I'm giving you and I'm saying degrees, they're not degrees Fahrenheit. They're not degrees Celsius. They're what we call Kelvins. And Kelvins is just what we call the absolute scale, so zero. You can't go below zero on the Kelvin scale because that's what temperature is. Temperature is measuring the motion. So when I put a thermo- we put a thermometer in something, it's measuring the motion of the particles in that water. If you put a thermometer in water, it's measuring the motion of the particles in the water or in the atmosphere. If they all stop moving, the temperature is zero. You can't, they can't be moving negatively, so there is nothing below zero on the Kelvin scale. That's just the limit as to how cold you can actually get. And even in space, where it is incredibly cold, 
there's enough radiation that it's still about three degrees. It's about three degrees. We'll come back to that a little closer to the end of the class. The end of the course, not the end of the class today. So the radiation laws, this is what I was telling you about a little bit before. The peak wavelength depends on the temperature. So when we're looking at something like the sun, okay, that peak is very close to the visible. So the sun emits a lot of light in the visible. It comes through, it gets through our atmosphere. It's stuff that we can actually see. Our eyes are sensitive to it. So we can actually observe that. That's something with a temperature of about 6,000 Kelvins. Something that's extremely hot, an extremely hot, oh, this is an ultraviolet picture of, uh, looks like the center of a star cluster, would be similar spectrum. So you notice how the shape is always the same. You always get, that's that black body shape of the spectrum. You always see the same shape. It changes in size in intensity and it changes in position. But the actual shape of it is identical in each of these. So at 60,000 degrees, here's visible light and still emitting a lot of visible light. In fact, it's still emitting more visible light than the sun. But its peak is actually out in the ultraviolet. For something that's a lot cooler, here it looks like a young protostar in a dust cloud. Here's the peak, here's visible light, not, very, not a lot of visible light, can't really see much invisible, but a lot of infrared. So when we're look, trying to study star clusters and stars formation, we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, it's very nice to have an infrared telescope that can look into there and see where they're emitting all their light. They're not emitting much visible light yet. They eventually will change and warm up and come into something like this, but when they're forming, then we see, some, we see something completely different. And finally, if we look at a, this deep dust cloud, even before this, when the stars are just starting to form, we look deep in this dust cloud. And trying to see that, we're looking at a much, much colder temperature. This was 6,000, maybe 600 degrees, maybe 60 degrees. Hardly any visible light. Looks pretty dark when you look at it, right? You don't see any visible light coming from this object. In fact, it's blocking visible light coming from behind it just because there's so much dust there. So hardly any visible light. I mean, visible light, you know, way down here someplace. And, but a lot of radio waves. It peaks in the radio. So it's emitting most of its energy in the radio waves. But again, the key thing, the, the, the shape is always the same. That curve always looks the same regardless of what the object is. If you're looking at a black body and what we call thermal radiation, most everything we'll talk about till we get to the end of the course is thermal radiation. It's just energy radiated by things having a certain temperature. So that's where the peak, peak goes. So the hotter the objects emit higher energy radiation. The cooler objects emit lower energy radiation. Now the one with a wonderful equation for you. I know, everybody loves it. Not a, not a bad equation. You don't have to put numbers into it or anything. Total energy emitted is proportional to the fourth power of the temperature. So that means it's very temperature sensitive. If you increase the temperature a little bit, so if you increase the temperature, double it. So you had that cool star that was 3,000 degrees and you have the sun that's 6,000 degrees. If we double that, we not only double it, but we double it four times. 
So 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 would be 16 times more energy. So the energy emitted by an object that is just 2 times hotter emits 16 times more energy. So why do we see all these nice pictures of hot young blue stars, as we've seen some in our photos of the day? Because they're so bright. If they are two or three times hotter than the sun, if they're twice as hot as the sun, that's 16 times brighter, 16 times more energy. Don't worry, there's some constant in there. You're not going to have to, we don't have to worry about that. And this is the energy per unit area. It's essentially, just think of it as the amount of energy depends on the temperature. You know, I'm not going to give you numbers to have to plug in there. What if it were three times hotter? So what if something were three times hotter than the sun? 18,000 degrees. That's not unreasonable for some of the hotter stars. Three times three times three times three. Anyone love math enough to tell me? 81, 81, right? Three times three times three times three, 81. It would be 81 times, almost 100 times. Three times three, nine and nine, so nine and nine, 81. Yeah. So 81 times more energy. And all we did was triple the temperature. I mean, tripling the temperature is a lot, but you know, turning the oven up from you know, 100 degrees to 300 degrees, yeah, it's, it gets hot, but think of how much more energy is being emitted. And that really works. So that's why we see all those bright young blue stars. When we look at a cluster of stars, we see all the bright young blue ones because of this exact fact. They're hotter than the sun, so a star like the sun sitting there would be invisible. If you're looking at something that's 100 times brighter, almost 100 times brighter than the sun, and a star like the sun, which one, is gonna, which one are you going to see easily? Right? You're going to see the really bright objects. So again, I'm not going to give you exact numbers. I'm trying to get you the idea. That, remember that fourth power is kind of nice to know, but I won't give, wouldn't give you anything too, too hard on that one. Okay. Now to where we were on Friday. So some of this should be a little bit of review for you because Professor King went over a lot of this. So. But essentially what we did on Friday was this. A spectroscope is the instrument that takes your light source, focuses it in some way. Okay, here's our beam. Here's our slit. That was the end of your spectroscope. Inside there, there was some device that split up the light. Not exactly like a prism. You didn't have little prisms of glass in yours. They're usually what they, they call a diffraction grating. They're a little piece of plastic that has lots of many, many very fine lines on it that will do the same, have the same effect. But what it did is it split the light up. And you looked and you saw a rainbow, essentially. So you saw red light through violet light. Now you may have, depending on which one you looked at, I said neon did give you a pretty big range of colors. Some of the others you only saw specific lines, and we'll talk about that here in a couple of minutes. But this is just what you did. So this is essentially what you did on Friday. You had your instrument did all of this, and then this is what you saw with your eye, and that was your light source. So that was your tube in the spectrum. Now, here's closer to what you actually saw. Right? When you looked at hydrogen, you saw something like this. Emission lines. Emission lines are formed by a hot gas. So inside each of those tubes was a gas being heated by the electricity being funneled through it. So electricity was being funneled through it. It was heating up that hydrogen gas. And if we make it, we'll go through the details a little bit more. But Professor King went over them a little bit on Friday. And when that's the same thing, when that light goes through, Here's your, this is your spectroscope, those little black boxes you were holding. And inside you saw something like this. 
And this is more like what you saw, right? You looked at hydrogen, you saw a bright red line, probably a greenish line, and a couple of purple lines. You should have seen something relatively similar to that. Hopefully. Now everybody's all concerned about their labs, right? But that's what you should see for hydrogen. But each element will give you different things. So when you looked at the helium tube, you didn't see this pattern, you saw a different pattern. When you looked at neon, you saw lots of lines. When you looked at mercury, you saw something different. When you looked at water vapor, you saw something different. So all of those that you looked at, each one gives you a fingerprint, essentially, for the atom. So that we can use that to tell what things are made of. So if we see a star that has only these lines and only these lines and nothing else, it's hydrogen and helium. When we see a couple bright yellow lines here are sodium. Sodium doesn't have a whole lot. That's why astronomers like the sodium vapor streetlights, because they're very easy to filter out. If all they're emitting is primarily these two wavelengths of sodium, that's very easy for them to filter and then their telescopes don't see them. Whereas the regular standard incandescent lights emit an entire spectrum. And you filter out the entire spectrum, then you don't see anything. But helium has a different pattern. Neon, a lot of lines, right? Mercury, does some of those look vaguely familiar? I think those are most of the ones you looked at. You wish you'd had this first, right? But it tells you what the, what the element is made up of. Now the other type of spectrum that you can see, that we see when we look at a lot of astronomical objects, is an absorption spectrum. And that is a hot source looking through a cool gas. So you know, the only thing is this hasn't changed. Your instrument's the same. You're still using the same instrument to observe each of these. But now you have, instead, when you looked at just the hot bulb, you saw a continuous spectrum. When you looked at just a gas, you saw an emission spectrum. But if the light from this bulb goes through the gas, then you see what we call an absorption spectrum. You see the continuous spectrum there, right? You see the whole rainbow. But beyond it, on top of it, you see certain wavelengths taken out. And if we look and go back, what's four, what's four or five lines do we have here? If you can see where the lines are, they're the same ones that are taken out. So in an absorption spectrum, you can still tell what the object is made of. This is what we see in the sun. So when you look at the sun, you see an absorption spectrum because you have this big bright source that emits a continuous spectrum. The, sun, the surface of the sun would be a black body. It emits every wavelength you can imagine. But the, it goes through the outer atmosphere of the sun as it travels through that. Whatever atoms happen to be there absorb certain wavelengths. So that tells us what the sun is made of. Now, Professor King went over that again on Friday. He told you that's how we tell what everything is made up of. It's a very complicated task. It's not near as simple as we kind of let you believe on Friday. This is the, this is the spectrum of the sun. I'm going to show you here in a second. Here we go. Here's an example spectrum of the sun. Sun's nice because we can see so much detail to it. So if you imagine, if this is put together on one page for your convenience, you can imagine taking each one and you know, running the strip all the way around the room. But can you see all the elements there? Can you see hydrogen? Can you see helium? Actually, you can see hydrogen. There's a bright hydrogen red line right there. There's what, the two sodium lines? 
that we had? I just happen to know some of those. I don't expect you to decipher these. But I wanted just to show this, just to give you the idea that it's not quite as easy as looking at the spectrum of a star. Most stars will look similar. And finding out where are, okay, what elements are we looking for? You need computers to decipher exactly what's, what the pattern of lines. And you're looking for that pattern of lines within this entire spectrum. So you can look for very specific lines. And then things can get more complicated when things are moving. Because when stars are moving towards or away from us, the lines move. So they might get shifted a little bit. So they might not be exactly where you expect them to be. So that can confuse us too. But I just want to show you that one. That's just to give you an idea that everything is not really as simple. You can't just look at the star and say, oh, hydrogen. You have to decipher where the hydrogen lines are. But if you're looking for other things in there, it's just a jumble. Now this I've already given to you, but I'm sort of putting it formally into words here. Kirchhoff's laws. And the first thing says that a solid, a luminous solid, liquid, or dense gas produces a continuous spectrum. That's the first one we looked at. That's when you see that continuous spectrum, the whole rainbow from red through violet. And that comes from something solid, liquid, or very dense gas. You know, sun would be a very dense gas. If you heat up a solid, a filament in the light bulb, heat that up, then that is what is getting hot, and that is giving you a continuous spectrum. So if you have a less dense gas out in space, a nebula, that's hotter than anything around it, it's going to produce an emission spectrum. So the gas is being excited. It's producing those emission lines. So we're seeing, for example, the bright red line of hydrogen and the other couple lines of hydrogen. That's a low density gas. Another, the other low density gas, again, a cooler gas, if you have something that's producing a continuous spectrum, like the surface of the sun, pretty much produces a continuous spectrum, and it travels through something that's cooler and thinner than it, we get an absorption spectrum. So when the light from the surface of the sun passes through the atmosphere of the sun, or the atmosphere of the earth, the objects that are there will then absorb out that light. So those are the three types of spectra that you can see. A continuous spectrum produced by a luminous solid, liquid, or dense gas. An emission spectrum produced by a low density gas. And an absorption spectrum is produced by, if you have a continuous spectrum and you've got a cooler gas in front of it. Now I think, if I recall, does the next one do it? The next one does it in pictures. If you prefer to see the pictures, here's the same thing in pictures. There's a figure from your textbook. So you have a hot bulb and a gas cloud. If you're looking at just the hot bulb, that's the only thing you're looking at, you get a continuous spectrum. You're done. If you're looking at just the gas cloud, so if you're looking from this direction and all you're looking at is the gas cloud, you see an emission spectrum. Again, just what I just told you. And if you look at the gas cloud instead through, look through the glass gas cloud at the hot bulb, then you get an absorption spectrum. And again, the absorption and emission spectrum are going to be identical, and they're going to tell you exactly what that gas cloud is made up of. So if it's just got one, one element in it, it makes it a lot easier to be able to decipher it. All right, we're not going to get through. I'll start, I'll start here. You've gotten a little bit of this, but let me see. I'm about done. I'm going to have to stop there. I'll stop with Kirchhoff's laws. That'll go through. So spectral lines, Professor um, 
King did talk about, but I'm not going to go through because I've got several ch several pages to get through here. I'm not going to make it through all that. And the Doppler effect. So this, the, for, the spectral line formation I will not do, and the Doppler effect I will not include on your on your exam. This exam will be on the next one, but that way I can still do the exam Friday, so you'll have it back for Monday. So we will stop. We will stop there. I'm not going to try to start that right now. Questions? No questions. OK.